and welcome to Conversations with Sports Fans. I'm your host, Doug Hill, and in this episode, I'm excited to be joined by Dave Metter, better known on Twitter as at Cooperstown Dave. This weekend, baseball royalty descends upon the village of Cooperstown, New York for Hall of Fame weekend when Fred McGriff and Scott Rowland will be enshrined. It seemed a fitting time to have Dave join us as a guest. Dave loves baseball, the Philadelphia Phillies, and the Baseball Hall of Fame. He rose to prominence on Twitter with the handle of at Vlad for HOF when he focused on the candidacy of Vladimir Guerrero Sr. after the slugger failed to gain election on his first ballot. Since helping get Vlad Sr. across the finish line in 2018, Dave has turned his attention to the non-player groups, such as umpires, managers, and executives, and pioneers, and other types of candidates, as well as the Rule B, which outlines how, quote, overall contributions to the game shall be considered. Finally, he's a champion of catcher Charlie Bennett, whom Dave considers the best true player at that position during the first 35 years of organized baseball. Dave, welcome to Conversations with Sports Fans. Hey, Doug. Thanks for having me. Well, I'm looking forward to this conversation because your areas are areas that are kind of gaps in mind. So I'm I'm really excited to learn a little bit more about some of the uh, some of your strengths. So this should be a, a fun a fun conversation. Great. I'm excited. Um, you know, we we have only one question that we ever start with, though, and and that really is, what are some of your earliest memories of being or becoming a sports fan? Yeah, I was expecting that one since I'm a fan of your podcast. It's a tough one because I feel like compared to my brother and friends of mine, my my memory of childhood's foggy. But I my dad was a big sports fan. He passed when I was in high school and he was such a sports fan that it's not obviously a memory, but when my mom was about eight months pregnant with me, the Villanova Wildcats men's basketball team was advancing in the tournament and he went and flew to Lexington, Kentucky for the final four in 1985, leaving my mother eight months pregnant with my one and a half year old brother at home. Um, And he got to see them knock off the, Patrick Ewing led Georgetown Hoyas famously. But otherwise, I was thinking about this question over the weekend. I it's hard to think of a specific memory. There's a lot of photos of me at Veterans Stadium at Phillies games. But the big image as a childhood is if you were born in the mid-80s, is Michael Jordan. Uh being a child of that era, you couldn't get past Michael Jordan. He was it's one of those things I think when People older than me talk about, oh, you could never imagine how big the Beatles were when I was a kid. It's almost like to younger people, you might think XYZ athlete is big, but Michael Jordan was bigger than everything. Otherwise, my other real answer would just be, I remember being at, I guess it was game six of the NLCS in 1993 when the Phillies beat the Braves to win the pennant. And I was there with my dad. And I just have this one visual memory of being in the parking lot after. It was chaos. I wasn't scared necessarily. There was an element of fear because there's a lot of rowdiness. But what I vi- I remember is seeing two different adult men 
I wouldn't have known it as a kid, but they were probably enjoyed some libations that evening dressed as Santa Claus. So two drunken Santa Clauses. Uh, I, I don't, I don't know why they were, but um, that gave me my first taste, certainly firsthand of what you might see from Philadelphia sports fans. I was going to say that sounds like a microcosm of the Philly sports fan right there. Yeah, obviously there's the old story you always hear about snowballs at Santa, which Philly people are exhausted by. It was a million years ago. But um, one of the uh, wonderful things about sports in Philly is if, you, if you're if you in Philly, you find when you're walking around the city, everyone walks, look, you look down. If someone talks to you, you kind of usually blow past them. Everyone's to themselves. But when the sports teams do well, it's a totally different thing. So when the Eagles won the Super Bowl a few years ago, Everyone runs to Broad Street, which is kind of the big main street in Philadelphia. And strangers, I mean, a woman comes up and kisses me on the cheek and you're hugging strangers. And it's for a, that short window of time, suddenly Philadelphians all love each other. How long does that last? I think it lasts basically that night and then maybe during the parade day. Okay. And that's it. And also there's the little bits of time after big wins in games where you're high-fiving people, but um, you might not get a kiss. Sure, sure. Um, So you you have this, you know, kind of seminal moment in in 1993 when you see the Phils knock off the Braves in the NLCS. Um, Was it always baseball? Did it did it ever did I mean are you a fan of the the Sixers and the Eagles and the Flyers or is it pretty much baseball for you? Uh, you know I I root for all the Philly teams. I, I don't understand the people who are from a major city with all the teams. Yet you're a fan of another uh, different city's team. As a kid, I was a bit more basketball centric. I played basketball all the time. It's the sport that you can most easily sort of go out and sort of play on your own. Um, As a child of the 90s, my Philly teams were not particularly successful. Um, On the positive side of that, though, is Philly's tickets were probably so cheap that we went to a lot of games. But um, I played a lot of basketball. That was really the, the focus. But basketball and baseball have always been top. And then from a certain fan perspective, baseball's more or less been number one. Yeah. And I know you alluded to it when you said you you didn't quite understand how fans in major cities could perhaps be a fan of another area's team, but um, you know, as we kind of outlined in the in the intro, you early on were a big supporter of Vladimir Guerrero Senior. So there has to be a backstory as to how that came to be. I would imagine, and I don't want to skip any of the fun stuff in the middle, but. Do tell how Vlad Sr. became your guy, as it were. Yeah. Um, it was would have been when I was maybe 12 or 13. Uh, my mom is from central Pennsylvania around the Harrisburg area, and so I still have a lot of family around there. And one day I was with uh, some family. We went to a Harrisburg Senators game, which at the time was a minor league affiliate of the Montreal Expos. And we're at the game and there was a player who just had a set of skills and a manner of uh, 
handling himself. I mean, anyone who's watched watched Vlad Senior, it's still weird for me to say Senior, um, but I have to clarify, Vlad Senior, he was a unique player, and I fell sort of in baseball love that day. He was ultimately part of a rookie class in the NL East, even with Scott Rowland and Andrew Jones. Um, as a Philly fan, we lo- I loved Scott Rowland. There's a lot of anger towards him for leaving the city, but otherwise, everyone loved Scott Rowland. But I was all about, and I like Scott, but Vladimir Guerrero. He had a certain style. He swung at everything. He had a cannon of an arm, even if he didn't always hit his target. He had an interesting gait because, as I later learned, he, one leg is quite longer than the other. Um, and I just found him particularly interesting and that's how I first found him and then of course back then I would get my dad's newspaper every day to check the box scores to see how he was doing and he it was just remarkable to find him at such an early part of his career and watch this whole hall of fame career play out um as a guy who hit for a high average with a lot of power and so that's why then when somebody who had um numbers that are only comparable to inner circle hall of famers his final batting average is i think 318 and he hit 449 home runs with a close to 1500 rbi that he didn't get in immediately upset me <laughs> so i waged a, a little campaign to try to get him across the finish line as you said and you know can you um let us in on on what it was that you attempted to do, um, you know, back in the, I guess, mid 2000 teens, um, certainly social media was prevalent. I would imagine that there was a heavy dose of that involved, but was it letter writing and other types of things as well? What, what, what went on with, um, with Dave Metter and, and your task to try and get Vlad into the hall? I took a very methodical approach. I, for one thing, even the notion came apart uh, about because I had read about um, there was an individual who made a bit of an advocacy campaign for Burt Blylevin, and that helped Blylevin. There was a writer who really brought Tim Raines' uh, Hall of Fame resume to the forefront and helped him. And Vlad, I don't have the numbers at hand, but I think in that first ballot, he got a little over 70%, and you need 75% of the vote. So he was destined to get in, and he was probably going to get in the next year. But I wanted to try to move the needle. So I had a subscription to what was called the Play Index on Baseball Reference, which is now called Stathead. So I could find interesting statistics on Vlad. I searched what I could online of news articles to find anecdotal information and quotes and I basically, I started a Twitter account, Vlad4HOF, where I would post a, a combination of different types of information. I would sometimes post stats you, that are more uh, sabermetric-like stats, advanced stats, certain traditional stats, certain anecdotes, quotes from people like Frank Robinson or you know some names that might get attention. I made sure to follow every Hall of Fame voter that I could find who had a Twitter account. I also tried to find every email address for each voter, and I emailed them all one time, and that's it. 
and uh because there's a lot of angry hall of fame advocates out there um but i would ultimately send them almost i made a sort of a one pager and given their voting patterns which i could tell from ryan thibodeau's hall of fame tracker which is a a thing that uh, a man named Ryan Thibodeau puts together every year where he tracks Hall of Fame voting patterns, I was able to make uh, identify, oh, for this voter, they tend to vote very much clearly on traditional type stats. So I'm going to send them that kind of information or the, you know, how that, where I'm going with that. And uh, I dialogued with a couple voters. I It seems as though I was able to nudge a couple in a certain direction. And at the end of the day, he got a little over 90% of the vote his second time around, which at that time was one of the biggest increases year to year of any player um, from in an instance where they went past the 75%. So, you know, who knows really if I made any difference, but it was really fun. And um, I was then left with an account, which I've then sort of used for other reasons. Um. Was that your first, I guess, dabbling into the Baseball Hall of Fame was with regards to Vlad or were you always interested in the process and tracked it or or did this just kind of, was this the, the I guess, the fulcrum that pointed you down that path and, and that's where you've kind of ended up now? It was more or less the fulcrum, I think. I did have, I remember I had this big blue hardback book um or a couple of books as a kid about baseball history. I always liked history. I My undergraduate degree is in history, and I always liked baseball. So compared to friends of mine when we were all sports fans, I always had a bit more of a, an interest in the history of the game. And I always had an interest in the Hall of Fame. My dad and I used to go to card shows on a lot of weekends. And through that, we would make a concerted effort to we would like try to get the rookie cards of Hall of Famers or we would pay to meet and get autographs of Hall of Famers. So he kind of maybe positioned me towards the the idea of Hall of Famers are special. And so I had an interest, but then Vlad sort of put me on a mission. And by playing around in the play index and looking at the Hall of Fame tracker and all that, I then gained a certain amount of awareness of the process that has led me down a, a road to getting into some serious weeds now. Um, clearly it's enjoyable for you or you would not be doing it. Um, but talk about that road and, and where it has led you. I, I referenced, you know, Charlie Bennett in the, in the intro, and we can certainly talk about him a bit, but, but what other types of maybe, uh, um, exits or checkpoints or road stops or rest stops along the way have you kind of found yourself in in terms of rabbit holes and places that you've kind of gotten into because of this I guess you know even reinforced love of baseball and the baseball history so for one thing just looking at trying to learn more about the existing hall of famers and I tend to see people who are in the hall of fame whose names you don't hear about as much who are absolute the tremendous talents like Archie Vaughn and Charlie Geringer or Al Simmons, who, um, for whatever reasons, are just not discussed as much. And so I, I like players like that. I like trying to identify who are the players outside the Hall of Fame that maybe people 
don't talk about it as much, which there's a small community of people around Twitter who share that interest. I, I think everyone knows certain big names who are outside the Hall of Fame, usually for PED reasons or whatever else. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, that's for one thing where I found Charlie Bennett, but I was probably just doing various searches when you do more uh, statistical searches, it's certain names just keep coming up and you're sort of like, well, who is this person? And, uh, you know, I don't think this 19th century catcher was using steroids. So what's the story here? Or um, I read through the era committee rules and that's where I noticed the, what you alluded to as rule B, which explained, and it kind of shocked me how individuals who are eligible for the Hall of Fame are not to be uh, evaluated as just a player or just a manager or just an executive or umpire. But if they've worked in several of those disciplines, they're supposed to be evaluated on their contributions in all of them together. And that seemed to me a way to find more Hall of Famers. Someone like I, you know, one of my favorites uh, is Felipe Alou, who is very challenging because, in a way, maybe he's not a Hall of Famer in any one of those areas, but in a when you combine them, I he seems it to me. So, those are some of the paths I've uh, found myself yeah. on. And of course, um, I really need to continue to learn more about the Negro Leagues and early black baseball. I wish I um, had taken interest in that earlier. But with the major leagues, uh, to some extent, including them in major league statistical historical record, I'm constantly trying to learn about that history because it's so interesting. And there's so many tremendous talents who just didn't get an opportunity to play in the American League or National League. Um, Let's go back to Charlie Bennett, if we can. I am completely unfamiliar with him. Um, clearly you are not, <laughs> you have more than a little passing familiarity. So, so talk to me about why, uh, this 19th century catcher stands head and shoulders above the rest of his contemporaries to you. Sure. So Charlie Bennett was a catcher in the 19th century. He first appeared in the major leagues in 1878 and his career ended in ni- 1893 at the age of 38, he was a bit, he was on the downside of his career as most 38 year old catchers would be, but he also was victim of a horrific train accident when him and teammate and hall of famer, John Clarkson, uh, disembarked off a train and he fell and the train went over his legs and that put a quick end to his career. But he was such a celebrated figure that, uh, the ballpark that was, the Detroit Tigers ballpark got named in his honor. He's the only former major leaguer who has had their name on a ballpark who isn't, you know, an owner like Connie Mack or Comiskey or Clark Griffith. But in short, the only Hall of Famers who are, quote, catchers who played in the 19th century are people like Buck Ewing. And these are these maybe just be names to a listener, but Buck Ewing or Deacon White. Buck Ewing and Deacon White played less than half of their career games at catcher. And that's great. Um, Think of maybe a Joe Maurer. But is it fair to compare 
what Joe Mauer did compared to, say, Yadier Molina, to put it in modern context. Catcher is such a demanding position and so unique that it just seems very kind of apples and oranges. And Charlie Bennett played more than 90% of his games at catcher. And in that period of time, it was a very physically demanding position because there was next to no equipment to protect a player. It's said that Charlie Bennett's hands and fingers were so mangled from so many broken bones. And there were times where his hands were bleeding and they had to pull him out of games. So in that sense, I consider that there isn't a catcher in the Hall of Fame from the 19th century, which seems like a gap because it's such an important position. And why Charlie? Because Charlie has a combination of offensive and defensive um, achievement that no one else has. He had a career OPS plus, which is OPS that adjusts for era and uh, other factors of 119, which means he was 19% better at OPS than the average player in his time. And for the data we have of defense, he was absolutely exemplary. And the anecdotal reports of his defense match that. He's, by certain measures, more or less second to Pudge Rodriguez as a defensive catcher. And a catcher who can get on base and slug at a 119 OPS plus rate. This is an exceptional player. It's sort of like a Gary Carter of the 19th century. And part of the reason he's not in the Hall of Fame, so I could keep going, as you could tell, is I'll try to keep this short. For one thing, Hall of Fame doesn't start till the late 1930s. Someone who played when he did, the voters at that point, probably not that many would have seen him play or been familiar. Voters at that point didn't even have access to statistics, let alone statistics that would have benefited Charlie Bennett, given a lot of his value was on defense. To this day, a lot of people don't feel like we have great stats for defense. Also, there's a big backlog of players when you're starting a Hall of Fame. And yes, Charlie Bennett isn't Cy Young in terms of perhaps inner circle Hall of Fame. And then the peak of his career was with a team called the Detroit Wolverines who were a National League team, but they went defunct in the late 1880s. So there isn't really a team, or a franchise rather, that honors his history, which then kind of leads him to not be as discussed. He's certainly a major figure in Detroit baseball history, but you kind of have to be a real history person to be aware. So if you go on Twitter, if you search hashtag Charlie4HOF, you'll find a lot of specific stats and information that I've put out there about Charlie, but I'm a big fan. Yeah. Um, so Charlie and then the number four, just like he did with yes. Vlad. Okay. Just making sure we'll make sure we include that. And, you know, you're talking to a, a Detroit resident, so I should know all of this and I don't, I, I did not know that he was the namesake for Bennett park. Um, so you've given me a little, information there that I, I love having and I was just down actually as we speak today I was down at the corner of Michigan and Trumbull earlier today for a, I met some people down there which is where Tiger Stadium was I can't recall if that was the original location of Bennett Park or not but um, fascinating to, to learn that about him um, and it, it, you're right you make a very good case as to why he would have been overlooked 
Um, how do we get him that next look? I mean, and maybe this leads us into the to the errors committee and, and how he can maybe get there at some point. That's definitely the tricky part. So for one thing, when it comes to Vlad Guerrero, um, we know the voters basically who were voting uh, voting on the Baseball Writers of Association BBWA ballot. Yeah. Um, the voters of the in the era committees. It's a small group of former players, managers. There's some historians and other figures, and there's like sixteen of them, and. So that's a smaller group. I'm sure a lot of them aren't exactly super history focused. So then it comes down to them having information, but you first have to get on a ballot. And these era committees, which previously was called the Veterans Committee, in past times it was the Old Timers Committee. Um, how this system works has changed a lot over the years. And in the current system, Charlie Bennett would only be eligible every three years. And that committee uh, period would be a committee that's called, I'm pulling it up, the Classic Baseball Era Committee. And this committee covers all baseball figures. So that's all those categories I was speaking to, players, managers, executives, and umpires, from the beginning of time up to 1980. So you're talking over 100 years of baseball history across all major leagues of that history. That includes uh, the major Negro leagues mm -hmm. um, across all those categories. And there's eight spots. And myself and others would agree that there's still a, a decent chunk of missing Hall of Famers from the Negro leagues who I think I would really like to see really take up a, a decent chunk of the ballot. So how he gets on because there isn't generally a lot of appetite for 19th century players is tough. So all I can do is blast out some tweets and hope there's a bit of a groundswell of interest in someone like Charlie Bennett. Now you, re you referenced the ballad a couple of times and we're probably you know, losing listeners as we speak because we're getting into the weeds, but it's fascinating for me and it's my show and I'm going to do whatever the heck I want. <laughs> Gosh, darn it. So thanks for being here, Dave. But, um, you talked about the ballot and certainly it's not as cut and dry as the baseball writers association of America ballot, where you have X number of players that appear and then there's a vote. How does one even get onto a ballot of these era committees? So for one thing there, as I said, uh, for Charlie Bennett, he would be part of this classic baseball era. Yeah. And I said every three years because there's three different iterations of the committee. One is that one I just subscribed. Mm -hmm. Then there's the one that meets this year, which is uh, for the era, the period of 1980 to present, all non-players. So that's umpires, managers, and executives since 1980. Then the other one is only players since 1980. So for one thing, the really the first thing that occurs is, do you qualify? Are you eligible for the Hall of Fame? First step is, are you on MLB's ineligible list, like Joe Jackson and Pete Rose famously? If you're that, get out of here. You're not qualified. After that, um, what is the category where you were, quote, most prominent? Like all those categories I described. And there's mm -hmm. rules about how many years did you ha uh, perform for like players? It's 10 major league seasons, etc. Um, There's other details I won't get into, but um, there's that. And then it's, 
against that 1980 time post I just referenced. So yeah. um, if you're whatever category you're in was most of your significant, I think is the term they use contributions pre or post 1980. And so that that first puts you into which of those three committees are you even considered for. And then there's some sort of committee that creates the ballot. And then there's the sort of group of X players and so forth that vote on it. And you need to get 75% of that vote to get in. And there's 16 voters and each voter gets, they changed it. It's either three or four votes each. Uh, and so that's how it works. So, so that ballot, then I would imagine it. It sounds as though it's a bit shrouded in mystery in terms of how it's even crafted or created. Who those um, people that might be on that initial ballot for the sixteen voters to even consider? You know, is it like members of the board of you know directors from the Hall of Fame and some other baseball notables, or is it you know you, me, and 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 charlie from down the street who decide that these are going to be the 20 people that we put on the on the list or how does that work do you have any insight into that at all uh yeah they don't share a lot about that i think uh the board gets involved and there's a, a screening committee well here i've got some information screening committee consists of 10 to 12 representatives and they identify eight candidates now, what that doesn't really tell you much. A screening committee of 10 to 12 representatives. One thing I can guess is representatives means human beings. Beyond that, I don't know. Hopefully, nearly all of those 10 to 12 people are historians. And um, so they keep that tight to the vest. And the deliberations that then occur amongst the voting group yeah. is very kind oh, of yeah. secretive. Um, there have been some people who have shared off like uh on the off the record um some information i was able to get confirmation from a former committee voter of like when i referenced rule b uh i asked them you know is the sort of rule b information even provided to the voters so if lou pinella is eligible as a manager they're presented the voters with some amount of information about lou pinella's managerial career are they even given information about his playing career? And the answer was yes. Okay. So that, and I'm sure that these rules, because again, there aren't that many rules for uh, voting, are read through. Now, how much individual voters actually focus on that rule B concept, who knows? But it's all pretty secret. But I believe minutes are kept, and they're probably down somewhere at the Hall of Fame in a basement, and they'll probably never let us see it. And did I hear you say that there are eight that end up on the ballot? It, yes. That's, so we're talking from 1865 or 70 until 1980, all categories, eight people. Yeah. And okay. you have to keep, consider that this is a composite ballot is the term. So all those categories. So it's fair to assume you're going to have at least one candidate of each category in there. So that's four already. Um, you're probably not going to see two umpires on that because of just level of interest. But um, it's tough because, for example, Dick Allen is the name that he's got fallen one vote short of election twice. So you can expect he's got to get on and everyone's just hoping he can finally get in. And so quickly, the number of slots of pot for a player gets taken up pretty fast. 
and you referenced um, Felipe Alou. Does he fall under that one, do you think? Or does he on that post-1980 other Rule B category? It's so tricky. <laughs> um, I think that from talking to people, I think that they, it would probably be put that, yes, he's in that pre-1980 group because the first consideration is what is your primary category? And I would assume that people would say player. He definitely had a more successful playing career than managerial career. But to me, a big chunk of his Rule B candidacy falls really on both sides of 1980. On one side, he was the first Dominican player in baseball and a, a star in that regard. But he did a lot in his post-playing career as a real leader for helping Latin ball players progress in the major leagues. Tremendous mentor to Vladimir Guerrero and others. Um, the Latin community, especially Dominican players, just revere him unlike sort of any other figure. And in a way, that aspect of his career, I think, is extremely important. But I, I would guess player. And so for him to find a way onto that those eight spots, unless the Hall of Fame steering com uh, screening committee was to make a real concerted effort like many want to see, which is to let's get living people on the ballot as quickly as you can, because we like to see people get to go on the stage every summer and give a speech that it's just hard to fit in. There's so many possible candidates for that ballot. Yeah, yeah. Um, you also referenced, I know, Lou Pinella, who I guess I'm not as familiar with his playing career, although that was my era as a youngster. I should be a little more familiar, but he played for the uh, for the Yankees and I didn't really care for the Yankees. <laughs> uh, so I didn't really pay a lot of attention. But that that aside, he um, probably was a more successful manager, I'm thinking, from just recollection than Felipe Alou was. So does he maybe fall in that post 80 in that ballot yeah he does um he's um appeared on past ballots um under maybe the system was slightly different but yes he would he's definitely his primary contribution is as a manager and he's definitely post 1980 he was one vote shy of election in 2019 uh in the year that lee smith and harold baines were inducted other than the Dick Allen instance that I described, everyone who's fallen just a vote shy has eventually gotten in. I would say Lou Pinella is the person that is most likely to be on this ballot and most likely to get in. Um, but yeah, to to the point of Pinella, it, based on Rule B, his playing career should be considered. It wasn't a, a superstar level career, but it was significant. He won a Rookie of the Year. He won a couple World Series. He was a 12-war player, and um, he won a lot of games as a manager. He only won one pennant, though, and no Hall of Fame managers exist who've won less than two. Hmm. So that would be a difference. But um, what I say to that is, you know, a lot of the managers of the Hall of Fame managed when there were eight teams in a league. So you're a manager. You're competing against seven other teams for that pennant. Pinella's competing against perhaps 14. So I think holding them to a certain standard of many more pennants uh, just won't fly moving forward. I, I would also offer that many of the managers 
um, who are in the hall probably were not as capable of player as Lou Pinella was either. I mean, granted, he was he'd never make the Hall of Fame as a player, but he certainly was a better player than, you know, I'll use Sparky Anderson as a point of reference, you know, as, as a Tiger and Reds fan growing up. You know, he was never going to be anything as a player, but as a manager, he certainly did something. But I would say that if we consider the totality of someone's contributions to baseball, Lou Pinella can rise to that same level. Sure. And you you have a couple examples in Joe Torrey and John sure. McGraw of excellent players who then had even better managerial careers. But other than them, um, you know, most of those managers did play. Um, but yeah, he, uh, Pinella had a very, uh, you know, what's the best, what's the, I don't know what the fairest sure. adjective is, but a very significant career, especially based on my understanding. I, I didn't, I wasn't alive. I didn't see this period, but he apparently was considered a very clutch player. He made some big plays in those playoff runs. So I think it's fair to say maybe there's, if you think he's a little short as a manager, given the penance and whatnot, he's 15th all time in games managed 17th in wins, which is you know, if you're 17th in managerial wins, basically everybody who has more wins than you is either in the hall of fame, not yet eligible, which is Bruce Bochy, um, Dusty Baker, uh, Terry Francona, probably Terry Francona, maybe, or Gene Mock, who just doesn't get in (laughs) has been the the history because he just didn't have playoff success. So by all those measures, he seems like he fits. Yeah. I think the adjective for him as a player, if I recall, would be, a very serviceable big leaguer who had some moments along the way that were memorable. I mean, you reference rookie of the year and some of his clutch hits. He was, I mean, he was a very good, maybe not very good. He was a good major league baseball yeah, player. I think yeah. that's fair. Yeah. Um, I have heard you on another podcast at one point, And one of my favorite topics is Dr. Frank Job. And I, I want to say that you maybe touched on him a little bit. It, there doesn't seem to be a category for him in any way, shape, or form. But is it outside of the bounds of saying that, you know, in this day and age that few people have made the type of contribution to the game that he has in terms of how he's impacted so many major league arms over the years? It is kind of hard to imagine there are many people who have made more of an impact the tricky part is, I i mean, I don't like to operate in life that if something's never happened before that we should set it aside. But I also like to be rooted in some amount of precedent. And Dr. Frank Job, for one thing, his category would be pretty clear because he wasn't a player, manager, or umpire. So he would fall into what would be called the executive category. But the executive category has also operated as somewhat of a catch-all for just anybody, but pioneer is the word people use. Yeah. He was certainly the pioneer of that surgery. Um, when you look at the executives currently in the Hall of Fame, because again, I tend to then go to president, you see mostly a lot of like more you know, commissioners, league presidents, team owners, general managers, those types of people. There isn't a lot that I could, if I even just try to stretch, uh, some careers to say what's closest to Job. Um, I have no idea if 
to a screening committee, he would even be on the radar if they would dismiss him out of hand. But certainly he he gets brought up a lot and his impact is significant. I mean, if if the point is to elect people who made really significant impacts on the game, Dr. Frank Job certainly deserves discussion. Yeah. As uh, you know, I'm a president of my uh, local teachers union, so I am aware that Marvin Miller is in the Hall of Fame and, you know, not an owner, not a league president not a commissioner, a pretty significant impact uh, from, you know, outside of those three biggies. He's probably the closest thing I could say to give you some sort of precedent would be someone like him possibly. Yeah. And really, again, so this is where my being a bit conservative on just expectations comes into play. I was surprised. I I really didn't think they were ever going to let Marvin Miller in. So kudos to everybody involved in (laughs) allowing for that to happen. Um, but once he was in to me, to my mind and maybe others is Kurt flood. Yeah. Um, of course, Andy Messersmith. And I always forget, uh, the other player whose name was ultimately on the case that really changed, uh, the reserve clause Mm -hmm. situation, but Kurt flood, for one thing, I feel like almost given the tremendous contribution he made by basically sacrificing his career the quality of ball player that he was kind of gets forgotten and lost. Yeah. But I, again, I didn't see him play. I'm too young. But when I look at his statistical record, this seems talent wise, like a hall of fame talent, especially because, and this is one of my other axes that I grind. People tend to struggle with understanding what a hall of fame center fielder is. Uh, and I think that the contribution Kurt flood made, Forget even if he wasn't such a great player, should he? I, I want to see him in the Hall of Fame. I think he should be in. I think given the powers involved, that it could be hard. I think the Hall of Fame is technically separate from Major League Baseball, but they're very connected. And people need to remember Major League Baseball in a certain way. And uh, I know it's unfortunate is kind of thirty either really wealthy individuals or groups that own teams. That's kind of really what Major League Baseball is, just as the commissioner is just someone who serves at the behest of those 30 entities. So I think honoring somebody who did what Kurt Flood did to advance the existence of free agency might be a tall order. But to the more interesting, perhaps, point of center fielders, um, after Mickey Mantle, who debuted in 1952, there are only two people who've been elected to the Hall of Fame who played at least half of their career games at center field. Um, I forget how I just framed the sentence. That, that are in the Hall of Fame. Only yeah. two people, Kirby Puckett and Ken Griffey Jr. Since Mickey Mantle in 1952, two center fielders. So that shows there's a bit of a confusion. Now, I'm not saying Kurt Flood should get in as a player. I think his career was too short, but... Mm-hmm. Um, between that and his really significant acts as a, what would be called a pioneer, I would like to see him in. Well, so you, I know you said you're, you're you're a Philly guy, and there may be a little love hate relationship with Scott Rowland. He's got a big moment this weekend. Um, are you uh, supportive of his um, election? Absolutely. Okay. I have no, I have no, nothing in me that has the anger that certain people do. Uh, 
I think as a kid, I was maybe a bit confused by what was going on. But even as a kid, frankly, my understanding was this is a player who, by all reports, is playing hard, working hard, wants to win. And even as a child, it was very clear that that Phillies organization was seemed far from winning. Of course, only a handful of years later, they started to go on a, a run. But he wanted to go somewhere else. And in the spirit of Kurt Flood, I think just because you're drafted by a team doesn't mean you're kind of an indentured player to that team forever. Um, whether he handled it exactly right, I don't know. I have no reason to think otherwise. But um, he's his name... It's that feel factor people talk about with the player. Uh, people who might not dive as deep, they're like Scott Rowland. But one reference I'll make on Scott Rowland is he was kind of in the shadow of Chipper Jones among NL East third baseman. Chipper Jones yeah. is was almost like a Mickey Mantle at third base in terms of just as the switch hitting, incredible talent. But Scott Rowland was the best defensive third baseman I ever saw. And he was just such a class act. He had big moments for the Cardinals. And I, I, I'm thrilled. I think he's a, basically a top 10 or 12 third baseman of all time. And I think if you're that excellent at a position that's existed for 150 years, you should be in the Hall of Fame. Fair enough. Um so do you find time to just sit down and enjoy a baseball game or a basketball game or a golf tournament or anything like that? Are you, are you still a fan? Or are you now so consumed with um, your interest in the hall of fame that that has to take a bit of a backseat? Oh, I, I watch the Phillies every night I can. I'm devastated. They're not playing tonight. So I'm so glad that I could be here with you to talk about baseball, but um. Of course, it could be hard in those lean years when your team isn't that good. The Phillies are playing well this year. They had a miraculous run last year. So I absolutely watch them. Um, the Sixers, I tend to sort of wait until the playoffs a little bit. But um, no, of course, it's it's sort of part of my routine. Is like I think a lot of baseball fans, whatever you're working all day, whatever it is, you can eat your dinner and then you can sit back and watch a ball game and hopefully have a good time or a frustrating time. That's also a good time. Yeah. That sounds like you're describing tiger fans right now too. So mm-hmm. um, anything um, that's out there that you'd still love, love to do. I mean, besides getting Charlie Bennett um, on a ballot maybe and getting you know, at least 75% of the folks to, to say yes to him. Are there, do you have, um, you know, aspirations either as a fan, some events you'd like to see in person or live or, um, or anything to do with your little, you know, side gig in terms of uh, research in the Hall of Fame. Well, for one thing, yeah, I'm in Pennsylvania, and I've still never been to Cooperstown, which is especially uh, ridiculous. Since after Vlad got elected, somebody from his team or whatever you'd call it reached out to me on Twitter and was like, "Hey, if you come up to Cooperstown, we can introduce you to Vlad." And I didn't go. Who knows what I was doing in my life at the time, but that's a bit of a regret. So I need to get up there. Um, I don't have Phillies season tickets, but if you buy partial plans, you then get priority access to playoff tickets. And so every year I'm just thinking, I got to get to playoff games. I've been to many. I was fortunate enough to be at Roy Halladay's playoff no-hitter 
Okay. Uh, which was probably the best ball game I've been able got to attend in person. That was a incredible thing to witness. And otherwise, I just uh, you know, I want to see more Negro leaguers get attention. And then also that the Negro leaguers who are in already get attention because these names, these are some tremendous talents and a lot of people don't know them. And I do have another side project where I've been trying to put together the statistical record of a league that was called the United States League, which was a Negro league in 1945 started by Gus Greenlee, who had started the Pittsburgh Crawfords, who is arguably the most meritorious executive from the Negro Leagues, not yet in the Hall of Fame. And he started this league with Branch Rickey. Um, or Branch Rickey got involved. It's a whole long story. I'm trying to figure out more about it. It was a league that wasn't as good as the National League, American League, or the Negro National League, or Negro American League. But um, it had some decent talent, and its statistical record does not exist anywhere. And I think it's unfortunate that these players' careers are missing. And so I'm working to try to document those, put together box scores, and then maybe someday get that information hosted somewhere. So that is that is a research project I'm working on. Yeah. Who, um, who were the communities or cities or what have you that made up that league? Who was in the U.S. League? Sure. So, um, yeah, the... Um, once Branch Rickey got involved, it seems like the idea was conceived by Greenlee in part because he wanted his Crawfords back in the Negro National League. There was always a lot of infighting between owners, just like in any league. And they were like, no. So I think part of it was to stick it to them. Part of it was maybe because this has happened in other leagues in history. I'm going to have a league. I'm going to make sure my Crawfords do best compared to them all. And that's going to get me into the Negro National League. Also, at this time, maybe it was a, people were aware that the World War II was winding down. But during World War II, the Negro Leagues were doing tremendous business. So there was an appetite and interest in having more of those games. The white owners of ballparks like Clark Griffith were making a lot of money renting out their parks to Negro League teams. I think Branch Rickey wanted to get in on that. But the story that's always told is that Branch Rickey wanted to be involved in this league as almost a cover to scout Negro League talent. Um, but in any event, there was the Crawfords of Pittsburgh. There was the Brooklyn team, which was called the Brooklyn Brown Dodgers, which was owned by Branch Rickey. Uh, there was a Chicago team called the Brown Bombers, which was uh, reportedly owned by boxer Joe Lewis. Um, there was a team out of Toledo, which was at least partly owned by Olympic great Jesse Owens. Hmm. Um, there was a Detroit team, the Motor City Giants. Um, there were a few other teams. It's hard to know how long they really played in this league. It didn't do well. The league struggled. Um, Gus Greenlee had a great capacity for understanding marketing, which I think is how Jesse Owens and Joe Lewis got involved. So you look at up articles about these teams. If the Chicago Brown Bombers are being discussed, it's often Joe Lewis's Brown Bombers or the Toledo team would be touring uh, the country playing games and there'd be a ball game. But the bigger story is Olympic great Jesse Owens is coming to town and he's going to do a foot race against a horse. 
and he would race a horse. And so that shows maybe how you try to just sell some tickets. But um the league didn't didn't succeed very long. Well, that's a fascinating um side project. I look forward to learning a little bit more about that and had, you know, no idea that it existed. Um but really intriguing that Joe Lewis and Jesse Owens would be would be into it. And and I would agree that that probably was directly related to Mr. Greenlee's um, marketing acumen. <laughs> yeah. And Greenlee hired like Oscar Charleston, the, who, you know, mm-hmm. was sort of like a, the Willie Mays before Willie Mays was a manager of a team and um, Turkey Stearns, who's a hall of famer mm-hmm. was involved in a team. So at times at 50 years old, Oscar Charleston got an at bat. So I've got some at-bats, plate appearances for some of these players that aren't recorded otherwise. And Jesse Owens and Joe Lewis reportedly played some games. Joe Lewis played first base or something. Um, But it's really hard to find box scores, and it's a very tedious and challenging endeavor, but working on it. Well, good on you for doing that, and, and thanks for all the work that you're doing to try to shine a light on some of those players who deserve some recognition. And... Uh, I cannot thank you enough at Cooperstown Dave on Twitter. You'll find him there and Charlie number four HOF. That's a hashtag uh, to learn more about Charlie Bennett. Um, Dave, it was a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you so much, Doug. Conversations with sports fans is a production of the sports fan project. Our theme music is fittingly entitled wooden championships by Lobo Loco. Please visit our website at thesportsfanproject.com for more information and to contact us. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, please share it with other sports fans you know and invite them to give it a listen.